BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Welcome back. Tom Hartman here with you. So do we need a national service for everyone? Different countries have experimented with this over the years. Back in the 80s, I lived in Germany. I was living at the headquarters of the Salem International Organization, saleminternational.org, and they had a little, not quite a hospital. It was a health center there, you know, with a physician and a nurse and probably two dozen or so beds, as it were. These little health centers are just kind of scattered all over Germany. There were a couple of young men there who were doing their military service or doing their public service, their national service, by volunteering to work with the hospital. Because at that time, and I'm not sure what the law in Germany is right now, frankly, but at that point in time, when you got out of high school, you had to serve one year. You had to give one year of service to your country. The majority of young men, and this was just men, the majority of young men did that in nonprofit areas. And you could do it in pretty much any nonprofit area that you know, served the people. A smaller minority joined the army or some other branch of the military in Germany. And what it did was it got them out, right? It got them out into the world. It got them seen different parts of the country. It, it developed a sense of kind of national pride. The other thing is that a volunteer military is something that frankly, I think we should be concerned about. Traditionally, many countries have been concerned about it. It's certainly something that was concerned of the founders and the framers of the Constitution. The North Carolina Constitution, for example, said, as standing armies in times of peace are dangerous to liberty, they ought not to be kept up. That was in the Vermont Constitution, that language. That was in the Virginia Constitution. That was in the, or the Virginia Bill of Rights, 1776. It was the North Carolina Constitution, uh, 1776. In 1780, it was in Massachusetts's Constitution. In 1784, it was in New Hampshire's Constitution. And in fact, this is the first draft of the Second Amendment. The standing armies in time of peace are dangerous to liberty and therefore ought to be avoided as far as the circumstances and protection of the community will admit. And that in all cases, the military should be under strict subordination to and governed by the civil power. That was the first draft of the Second Amendment, or that was the second half of it. It starts out, you know, the, that the people have a right to keep and bear arms, that a well-regulated militia composed of the body of the people trained to arms is the proper natural and safe defense of a free state. In other words, the whole idea of standing armies being something that could overthrow a government. 
So with an all-volunteer army, you get much less, it, it doesn't reflect America. I think that one of the reasons, frankly, why the Vietnam War ended when it did was because Americans were sick and tired of sending their kids via the draft off to fight a war that they didn't believe in. And back then, of course, if you were like George W. Bush and your daddy was a member of Congress, your daddy could get you a plum, you know, uh, assignment to the National Guard. I would do away with that. I would say no more plum assignments for wealthy people or politically connected people. But our military should reflect America. Jefferson back in the day said I, in a letter to Madison in, in December of 1787, said, I hope I shall never see the day when paupers are willing to be shot at for a sixpence in America. I'm paraphrasing, but something very close to that. And he talked about the need for a military that drew from all the people, the wealthy as well as the poor. Now, I realize this is not something that is super popular. <laughs> I'll just put that right out there, that, you know, everybody give a year to their country. But in exchange for that, in Germany, you got unlimited college education all the way up to a Ph.D. or an M.D. for free if you did that year of service for your country. We are having a conversation in America about student debt and, and student affordability and free college. Why not marry the two? Why not say, you know, if you serve for a year, and I mean, we're sort of doing that right now with the GI Bill. If you enlist in the military, after you get out, your education in a public university is fully paid for, 100%. Plus, you get $1,000 a year tuition for books. Plus, you get, if you live in a rural area, you get a travel allowance so that you can travel to the big city where the colleges are. So it's kind of a start. But basically what it does is it draws poor people into the military, which takes us back to Jefferson's comment about, you know, poor people being willing to be shot at for a sixpence. Here's my thinking on this in the biggest context. When members of Congress are deciding whether or not they're going to take this country to war, and make no mistake about it, we are closer to that than most people realize. With Taiwan and China and with Ukraine and Russia, there is a very real possibility of war breaking out. Not to mention smaller conflicts around the world. And when Congress is deciding whether to send their soldiers to war, I would like those members of Congress to have children and grandchildren in the military because we had a national draft. And we see far too little of that. It's basically, you know, families of wealth. No, has anybody in the Trump family, for example, ever served in the military? No. In fact, Trump's grandfather was a draft dodger in Germany. It's why the Germans wouldn't let him come back. Explicitly, specifically, because he was a draft dodger. So that's number one. And number two, is we do have a draft in this country. We, ju we don't use it. But young men, when they turn 18, have to be registered with Selective Service. Number one, why isn't that registration with Selective Service? Because that's limited to citizens. Why is that not simultaneously a voter registration? I mean, wouldn't that be a fairly easy thing to do when a, a young man registers with Selective Service? At the age of 18, they are automatically registered to vote. 
And number two, women should be part of this. In other words, everybody is automatically registered to vote at 18, just as everybody is eligible for the draft. That was the bipartisan agreement. Democrats and Republicans came up with this in both the House and Senate for the military appropriations bill. Keep in mind, the founders, the people who wrote, or the framers, the people who wrote the Constitution, were so concerned about a standing army during time of peace that the only place in the entire Constitution where the government, where Congress is limited in how long it can appropriate money to spend, what period of time it can spend money over, was the military. Congress can appropriate a billion dollars to build roads and spend it over the next 20 years if they want. But whatever they appropriate for the military cannot exceed two years. It's right there in Article 1, Section 8 of the Constitution. No military appropriation shall exceed two years. Why did they put that in there? Because they wanted Congress every two years to be forced to ask itself the question, do we want to continue having a standing army? Now, since the War of 1812, that has been largely ignored and passing the military appropriations bill every two years or even every year has become a normal thing. But if we're going to do that, if we're going to continue having this draft, and we are, why not A, tie it to voting, and B, include women, and C, actually use that draft? It seems like a straightforward process to me and give people college education or trade school or whatever they may want out of it as a result. But make it, you know, extend it to everybody. And like I said, include voting on it. I just, it seems like a way to get people to meet people that they otherwise wouldn't. A way of kind of throwing folks at the age of 18, you know, at a very impressionable age, at a, de at a developmental stage. It's a, uh, a transformation of life. It's a coming of age moment. That's psychologically a good thing, right? Jeff in Jacksonville, Florida. Hey, Jeff, what's up? As much as I love Jimmy Carter as a president, I believe that his pardoning of the Vietnam deserters or the ones that left the country. He pardoned the people I who went to that Canada. That really flaw I believe that that really affected our ability to have compulsory service. Do you think anybody I, I even remembers your, that, Jeff? Um, thoughts on that? A, I don't think anybody remembers that. <laughs> and B, uh, <laughs> no, I'm serious. I mean, that was a long time ago, right? That was that was that yeah, was in I guess the 70s. It was, yeah. And B, there was a broad consensus by that point in time that that war was illegal. That McNamara had lied. First, McNamara lied about it, and he kept that lie up for two weeks. Lyndon Johnson bought that lie and sold it to the American people. It took LBJ two weeks to find out that McNamara had lied. And at that point, he yeah. was already too far into it to stop. Robert McNamara is the guy, you know, if you want a villain to blame the Vietnam War on. But by the time that Carter became president, everybody kind of got it that, A, the war was illegal to start out with, and B, in 1968, Lyndon Johnson, LBJ tapes had not yet been made public, but now they are. We know that Lyndon Johnson had negotiated, uh, successfully negotiated peace in 1968 with the Vietnamese, both North and South Vietnam, and was going to ratify at the Paris you know, meeting. And Richard Nixon jumped in and said to the South Vietnamese, I'll give you all kinds of money if you refuse to do this. And it blew yeah. it up. You know, we were over it. You know, I don't see how that makes people more or less willing to support a national draft. I, I, if anything, I think that's another strong argument about if everybody has skin in the game, and I hate to use that expression that the Republicans 
you know, love to use to, it's what they use to make 20% of Medicare not paid for by the government. But if everybody does have some skin in the game, as it were, then they're going to be thinking a little more clearly and a little more carefully about getting us into an unnecessary war, don't you think? I will not disagree with that. Okay, Jeff, thanks a lot for the call. Joe in Parker, Colorado. Hey, Joe, what's up? When I was in the Army, and I was one of the last people drafted in 1972, my number was 87, they went to 96. Hmm. When I was in the Army, the Army looked like the rest of America. You know, it was a good experience. I went to Germany, met fantastic people. In fact, I met my wife over there. There were several guys that I was stationed with that said they couldn't wait to get back to the world. And I thought, wow, you're really missing out on this experience. You mean they didn't go, like, no. visit the local German towns and things? Oh, I never. I was never on base on the weekends. Yeah. yeah. Had, a BM, had a BMW motorcycle. It's gone all the time. BMW. Oh, yeah. It's like, you know, join the military and see the world. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, these guys, though, they sat around the barracks drinking all weekend. Oh, that's unfortunate. That's unfortunate. But still, I mean, your point, Joe, that back then the military reflected America. The, the one exception, of course, is very wealthy people. Their children did not go into the military, by and large, unless it was, you know, to fulfill some sort of ambition. I think that there was, you know, there was that sense of national service when, when George Herbert Walker Bush volunteered for the military and, and ultimately got shot down, as I recall. Um, you know, when Joseph Kennedy, Joseph Kennedy got shot down and died, you know, Jack's older brother in World War II. That was a sense, I think, of obligation to your country rather than just doing something for political purposes. Joe, thanks a lot for the call. Point very, very well made. You're listening to the Tom Hartman Program. It's the place where despair is not an option. Dave in Federal Way, Washington. Hey, Dave, what's on your mind? Hey, Tom, I want to agree with you so passionately, well, as passionate as I can get, about uh, voluntary service. Now, look, this does not have to be combat-related. I spent 25 years in the military, and here is what I learned, Tom. I was always looking for this magic, like, wonder leader. You know what I mean? This brilliant, charismatic, I mean, could solve all our problems. And here's what I learned. I went all the way up to Pentagon, and no offense to anyone at the Pentagon, but I didn't find it there. Here's where I found it. You know, you never, you can never tell. People, you know, they oftentimes they rise to the occasion. They rise to occasions you don't expect them to, and it's really quite amazing to look at. And, and frankly, you know, you got DeSantis starting these militia. This guy called in. He politely told you it's no big deal that, um, you know, they just help during catastrophes and whatnot. But look, in the United States of America, if you want to have an armed organization, it must answer to the Secretary of Defense. And I'll tell you why. If it does not answer to the Secretary of Defense, it can demand a pass on anything. Like perhaps they only want to do war. Perhaps DeSantis militia will only want to do war against Muslims. Maybe it doesn't want to do war against Russia if it's necessary and required. Yeah. We can't have that. We can't have a united nation. We can't have a united state. DeSantis is just pandering way. to the fascist Republican base, to the fascists in the Republican base. I mean, I guess it's fairly obvious, Dave, that that's what he's all about. All right, China has way over parity with us. They have way more soldiers. Russia has just as much technological capability. You know, actually, Russia 
has a professional military now. And, you know, there is some concern about them not being able to pay their pensioners and, and creating political instability in a nuclear-armed Russia. I mean, there are all kinds of things, and, you know, we haven't got time to go into all of them. But if you don't want a forced draft, America, if you don't want that, then you better think about, you know, bringing your genius to the table and getting involved. Yeah. That's all, you know, well said, that's my main point. Well said. Thank yep. you very much. Quick math, the less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessible from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Just head over to netsuite.com slash Hartman with two N's. netsuite.com slash Hartman. That's netsuite.com slash Hartman. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. Zilla, Washington. Hey, Paul, what's up? Well, I'd like to express an opinion also about uh, mandatory service. I think I've thought for years it's a good idea. The day I turned 18, I registered first to vote, then second for the draft. The day after my birthday, I donated blood and went to an anti-war protest. Wow. But I think service like Peace Corps, AmeriCorps, which some members of my family have done, uh, I think those are good alternatives. But I've thought for a long time that when you turn 18, you should have some period of service, maybe two years. Then you become a real adult citizen. I'm totally in favor of free education beyond that point. And I think that's being kind of part of the equation. Yeah. Well, Paul, thank you for registering your vote. <laughs> I'm with you. Thank you very much. Chris in Littleton, Colorado. Hey, Chris, what's on your mind? Well, I think a big portion of our leaders are the very essence of man's inhumanity to man. Their supposed presence should bring spiritual, moral, and intellectual things to our country and help people in every way they can, instead of suppressing the boat, doing all kinds of things that are counter-effective and counter-helpful to the rest of us. They have a leader in Trump and he leaves them all brown-mouthed and yellow-bellied, and they can't act on their own. They follow this leader like he was the Pied Piper, and they're 
practicing the wrong things in this country. The inhumanity that they're putting on the poorer people in this country, the elderly, the women, and as, as far as women in the vote, if they, uh, if all of these guys would send their wives, daughters, and granddaughters into the military, then I think they could go ahead and do that. But that would never happen because they're a protected part of the country. They protect themselves very well, and the rest of us have to fend for ourselves. Right. So I think we ought to really start looking at being a little bit more human to each other, and instead of making enemies of our friends, do like I did. I told a friend of mine who thought differently than I did. I said, you know, you and I may have political differences, but we can still be friends. Right. And through that, you can sometimes, through your actions, show them the right way rather you. than getting mad yep. and doing things that they shouldn't. But our, our leaders need, we need a change in our leaders. We need to have them look in the mirror and see what they are and what they are doing. Yeah. I, th I do think, though, that, Joan, that, that one of the biggest problems here, and, and thank you for the call, is that in 1976, the Supreme Court legalized political bribery, at least cracked the door open. In 2010, they fully legalized it with Citizens United. And the entire Republican Party, as far as I can tell, said, cool, we'll take all the money we can get. Billionaires, corporations, fossil fuel, doesn't matter, just send us the money. Guns, yeah, cool. And a good chunk of Democrats did initially, and they're backing away from that very quickly right now, which I think is a really good thing. But, but I think that, that you know, that's when the greed got in, and it's poison. It's just absolute poison. Stewart in Chicago. Hey, Stewart, what's on your mind today? Reads you a 43-word sentence, may I? Uh, can you paraphrase it, please? <laughs> well, it's one sentence. It's Section okay. uh, 4, Article 4. The United States shall guarantee to every state of the Union a Republican, a Republican form, of form of government and protect each of them against invasion and an application of the legislature or the executive when it's not available against domestic violence. Yes. That is the only time where the word guarantee appears in the U.S. Constitution. Nowhere else. Wow. And it's, just, it's just amazing. You know, the, the Second Amendment, uh, last night I watched the uh, play Hamilton uh, on television. And what was terrific about that play is that it was couched in the vernacular and language that is familiar to our contemporaries. Mm -hmm. And someone should, maybe I'll write the story, maybe you and I could write it together, write a story, a one-day uh, one argument between the Federalists and the, and the uh, Anti-Federalists, there are people on two sides of the issue of the Second Amendment. The Second Amendment, when you read the guarantee clause that I just read, you then realize that the Second Amendment, at least the prevailing interpretation of the Second Amendment, is total BS. And those who negotiated its wording at the time knew that it was BS. And finally, once I said, okay, let them have it, everything else in the Constitution contradicts it. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I, the, and the Guarantee Clause, by the way, Stuart, to the best of my knowledge, has never been adjudicated by the Supreme Court and has never been the basis of legislation. And frankly, I think it's, you know, it's a powerful stuff and it absolutely should be both. And it should be one of the reasons 
why the federal government should be opposed to these voter suppression laws, because a, re a Republican form of government, by definition, requires the participation of voters. And you've got state after state right now who are denying their citizens access to a Republican form of government. Instead, you're getting bought off forms of government, you know, a completely different thing. So uh, I'm with you, and I think that that's an absolutely brilliant observation. Stuart, thank you for that. Jerry in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. Hey, Jerry, what's on your mind? I just wanted to speak to national service, and I wanted to get your insights. For example, the uh, Israelis, you know, men and women both serve. They're proud afterwards of, of what they've done, and it seems to me that it, it might help them as individuals. It might help society as a whole. It doesn't have to be in the military, as you said earlier. There's all kinds of ways that you can be in national service. And I think everybody should have to do that. And maybe we wouldn't have some of the problems in the country that we have right now yeah. if that had been the case for a while. That is my hope, Jerry. And I think the experience of other countries bears that out. Although, you know, you never know. It would be interesting to do a real deep dive into it, which I you find policy papers essentially on both sides of the argument that claim to have solved the problem. I did get a note from a person in Germany who, uh, while I was on the air just a little bit ago, saying, uh, we don't call ourselves democratic socialists, we call ourselves social democrats. And so <laughs> please correct your language. I'm like, okay, all right, I right, got it. Jerry, thank you very much for that. It's, it's great to hear from you, and I'm, you know, spot on. I, I, you know, but again, it's easy, it's easy for, you know, old farts like me to say, oh, yeah, everybody turning 18 should have national service. It'd be interesting to know what young people think about this, too. Ron in Hammond, Indiana. Hey, Ron, you wanted to weigh in on the issue of rural versus urban folks? Yes. First of all, I'm a longtime listener and first-time caller, Thank and you, I really appreciate your program. Yeah, just to circle back to your point about the media, you know, not criticizing the Republicans, and I think the reason is Republicans don't need the urban people, whereas I think the Democrats do definitely need to get out and try to get the uh, the rural support. You mean because of the way that the uh, the Senate is organized and the and thus the sure. electoral college? Yes, yes. Yeah. I mean yeah. it's disproportionate and your point is well taken and I think you're right. It's just that I think that the Republicans are neglecting the urban folks because they don't need them really. That's what it comes down to. Yeah, I think you may well be right. Where um, the Democrats I think in terms of the disproportionate issue there definitely should reach out and try to get, and they did, you know, as you pointed out in the past, Democrats did have the rural people on their side. Yeah. With oh, yeah. Right up until, well, basically the end of the 60s, I'd say, the you know, up until Nixon's Southern strategy. Really until the Democrats said, we're going to give rights, you know, with 64 and 65, with the Civil Rights Act, the Voting Rights Act, we're going to give the right to vote and, and other civil rights to people of color. And that was the point at which white rural America said, okay, we're out of here. And what a tragic divide. It's, right. just, it's just terrible. Ron, thank you. Right. Th thanks for that observation. It was a good one. Mark in Valley, Washington. Hey, Mark, what's up? Well, Tom, I think you're being a little naive thinking that they would actually pass 
a draft that the rich and powerful could not evade. They're not the I could not see one Republican senator voting for a law that would force possibly their children or their donors' children to go to war. Well, you don't know. I mean, during the Civil War, a wealthy person could hire somebody to stand in for them during the draft. Right? I mean, it was perfectly legal. Wealthy, wealthy families would hire poor people to stand in for their sons in the military during the Civil War. Yeah, I think it was 600 bucks. I, I, I don't recall, but it may well be. And we did away with that. You know, in fact, we outlawed that. And uh, yeah, don't bring know. it back. <laughs> <laughs> you may be right, Mark. Maybe I'm being naive here. Uh, you know, certainly we saw a lot of, you know, edging around the edges of that during the Vietnam era. You know, when I was there, I remember, um, you know, but uh, yeah, you only had to go to college. Right. All you had to do was be in college, not to go to Vietnam, if I'm remembering right. That's that's largely true. Yeah. And I saw Dick Cheney did it. He got five deferments. So the first four were going to college. And then when he graduated from college and didn't want to go to graduate school, that's when he got married to, to Lynn Cheney. And this so he got a deferment for being married. Well, actually, he uh, you know, got married and got pregnant or she got pregnant all at the same time. Or, you know? they'll, all go, they'll all go to Trump route. They'll get medical deferments. Yeah. Well, yeah, I, there's always going to be ways around it, but, but you can, as a society, you can, number one, you can make it harder, you can make it illegal. Number two, you can make it immoral. And, uh, you know, people were not ashamed. You know, when Donald Trump got his bone spur deferments during Vietnam, I guarantee you, he was proud of that and probably bragged about it because there was this perception that the war was illegitimate. When you have a genuine, legitimate conflict like World War II. You didn't see that. You know, draft dodgers during World War II were not celebrated. The no. conscientious objectors were respected, but not celebrated. Steve in uh, Seattle. Hey, Steve. Thanks for listening to KBCS. What's up? Hey, I wanted to um, ask you, back to the issue of national service, what do you think of perhaps... Uh, making college education free for anybody that serves. And if you don't serve, you certainly have that option. Like if you're really uber wealthy and you want to, you know, get out of your social responsibility and you still want to go to college, then, well, maybe college should be really, really, really expensive. And that way maybe you could uh, tax the rich without taxing the rich. What do you think? Uh, I, you know, I, I'm not a fan, Steve, of anything that gives people with a lot of money a loophole, <laughs> which is what you're suggesting. Me neither. Me yeah. neither. I just really hate the greed involved. And, uh, you know, there's been a lot, there's so much greed in this society that I was reading somewhere where there's 1% of sociopaths. And if there's, what, 320 million people in this country, that's still 3. 2 million sociopaths right. out there. And they're, and they're overrepresented in certain professions. 15% uh, of CEOs, 12% of politicians. I mean, yeah. Well, you know, it's, it's, That's what I hear. Yeah, yeah, and yet but, our society is always rewarding this kind of behavior, this, you know. Right, but I think, I think if we did the draft the way that you're suggesting, that we would uh, still be rewarding them. But, uh, but you know, keep thinking. You're, you're, you're coming up with good ideas here, Steve. Or, or you're, you're dancing around the edge of them anyway. Jerry in Palm Springs, California. Hey, Jerry, what's up? Oh, hello. Uh, a quick introductory. I'm 76 years old. I live in California. I was drafted in 1966. I was in Vietnam. I had a good job, worked in communications. 
got out, and I went to college for free. I got a degree in uh, geography and industrial arts, and then I went in the Peace Corps for two years, and I taught electronics in Morocco. Wow. And when it, what okay. a fascinating life. So I did both. I was drafted, and I was in the Peace Corps for two years. And I really think that uh, having a, serv- uh, a required service for everybody is a good idea. We didn't have the nearest ladies when I was in the Army in, the, in Vietnam were the nurses in the MASH hospital that we were servicing in communications. In the Peace Corps, probably close to, I think, about 50%. Uh, teaching English as, foreign, as a foreign language and so forth. Mm-hmm. And your experiences in both. In the Army, I wasn't Vietnam, but uh, when you say, what countries have you visited? I don't tell them Vietnam, but I'll, I could take you all over Morocco mm. <laughs> and show you places that uh, normal people don't see. Because you'd been there in the Peace Corps. Yeah. yeah. Oh, the Peace Corps people know the country better than anybody else. Sure, sure. It's, all, it's almost a survival all school. The time. Yeah. you got to go out, hitchhike, or do whatever you can. Yeah. And then you start getting into you knowing different peoples. They're more familiar with the foreign languages of the country. Jerry, is uh, the Peace Corps still around? French. I had to teach in French. So uh, they sent me to French classes that the English teachers and so forth learned Arabic. Wow. Is the Peace Corps still around? Yeah, it is. We should, we should. I uh, think so. I think so. It was, I haven't heard that it doesn't exist. Yeah, I haven't heard a peep about it in decades, it seems. I mean, you know, hopefully it's still around. I'd, I'd like to see that amplified because that would be a great, you know, alternative to military service, too. Um, oh, when I was in the French, it's the Corporon system. If they go in, in the Peace uh, something similar to the Peace Corps, they don't do military. There you go. Jerry, thank you. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Michelle in Van Nuys. Hey, Michelle, what's up? My grandfather, who is actually older than my great-grandfather on the other side, left Ukraine because he was supposed to be drafted into the Tsar's army. And they, yeah, so they, his family, luckily, at least were property owners because in order to, the penalty for that was they had to find a replacement for him and pay a fine. And conscription was like for 20 years, I think, at the time. Whoa. That's very different than one year national service that I'm proposing. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, but that's that's what it was. It's like if you got conscripted into the 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 Tsar's army, it was a lifetime thing. You you, see, you know that was it. Wow. 
So. Uh-huh. And was yeah, Ukraine like, part of Russia at that time, or was it a separate country? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, it was part of it. But he, he was from about 50 miles outside of Kiev. Uh-huh. Fascinating yeah, stuff. So, yeah, so, I mean, this is, you can't even compare, like, when the, that other caller was trying to say that the army was supporting the Tsar. Not really. I mean, that, that's why you ended up with the Red and White Army, and they started, uh, you know, right around World War, after World War One, when people, you know, they, they terrorized people. The, you know, there was so much fear before that. And then mm-hmm. World War One. You know, that's why you had that revolution. Interesting. I, you know, I, I confess, Michelle, I'm, I'm largely ignorant of the, of the uh, pre-World War II history of, of that region. So um, thank you for informing me. Sure, sure. I appreciate it. Thank you very much for the call. Wes in Miami, Florida. Hey, Wes, what's up? What's up? The, uh, you were talking about Joe Biden, why he's not popular. He's not popular because this is the strategy of the Republicans. Um, all their bullet points don't require them to spend any money on their constituents. So, the, you know, I mean, this is all about, we were talking about with Alec, this is all about money. Yep. It's all about, I mean, let's face it, what, what does the Senate and the Congress do to allocate tax money? And, and here's, a, here's a question, by the way, Wes, that uh, somebody was posing on the Internet over the weekend that, that I saw this and I thought, wow, why didn't I think of that before? Um, we spend half our federal budget on defense. And, but, you know, we spend way less than that on supporting people. Why don't we spend more on supporting American citizens than we do on the military? Well, uh, if, 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 if the Republican Party relied on constituents to pay for their campaigning, than they would. Yeah. But, but they don't support, they don't get their money from them. No, they get their money from the right-wing billionaires and the big corporations. You're absolutely and right. And the military complex. And this is where their money comes from. This is why Citizens United is the first thing that really needs to be changed. Yeah, yeah, I'm with you. And, and I would tell people, and I would tell Republican Democrats that are running, that the biggest thing that they can do to win is keep reminding them, their constituents, and the people that listen to them, the people, because it's all the people, what their money is going to go for. Yeah. Do you yeah. want your money to go back to people that don't pay taxes, that don't pay you enough money to live, or do you want the money to go to you and your benefit? Yeah. This is the, this is the bottom line. Yeah. We have, Wes. So many, we have so many problems with, <laughs> with China and Russia. I mean, Oh, yeah. Is a boycott going to be what's going to work? Yeah. I don't know. Yeah, I'll just, my my quick take on those things, Wes, is I believe that, I could be wrong on this, but I think that China actually represents a threat in terms of taking Taiwan. I think there's there's a very real threat there. I think with regard to Russia and Ukraine, what Russia is trying to do is to say, stop moving NATO closer to our borders. They're saying the same thing John Kennedy said in 1962, as I recall, or 60, yeah, 62, with the Cuban Missile Crisis, where he said to Russia, or to the Soviet Union, you may not put missiles 90 miles away from the United States. Ukraine is right on Russia's border, and they're saying we don't want well, NATO Ukraine on Ukraine is not part of NATO, right? No, they're not. And, the, and, and I think that this is a negotiating strategy by, by the, on the part of Putin. But I could be wrong. I mean, you know, maybe, maybe, uh, well, maybe he is willing to start a say, war over this. I, what, I don't, if all NATO would, what if all NATO were to get together and say, hey, we'll bring Ukraine to NATO? What would he do then? 
Well, that's what he's he's threatening to take. He, you know, he's threatening to seize Ukraine. And uh, yeah, but I think it's you know, he's trying to hold off NATO. Our, our deal that George Herbert Walker Bush blew up was that there would be no NATO countries that have continuous contiguous borders with Russia. But All right, you know, thank you knows? for taking my yeah. call. Tom. Yeah, you're welcome, Wes. Thanks a lot for the call. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives. But I do think that China has reached the point where they are sufficiently powerful that uh, they're no longer afraid of the United States militarily. We'll see. Michael in Greenville, South Carolina. Another South Carolina caller. Hey, Michael, what's on your mind today? I am a very strong advocate for mandatory service. Because? Well, both of my wives, my current and my former, were military. I served for 20 years. I was in Desert Storm. I was a musician. Three out of my four women that worked for me volunteered to pull duty as military policemen. 36-hour patrols out of camp. Wow. Yeah. So is your point that uh, women are adequately tough to to serve in the military? What's the big deal? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Women, they volunteer. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, You know, it's... uh I mentioned Israel earlier. Louise and I spent a lot of time in Israel back in the in the eighties, mm-hmm. and the military people would be hitchhiking all the time. I don't know if it still goes on in the country. I'm guessing it probably doesn't. But we picked up a number of women who were hitchhiking with uh, AK-47s or, or Uzis Whoa. over their shoulder, you know, because they were in the military. Yeah, the women that I served with are awesome. Yeah. Yeah, I'm with you. Michael, thank you very much for the call. Randy in Chicago. Hey, Randy, what's on your mind? I usually agree with you 99.9% of the time, but on national service, I have to admit, I think it would be a mistake in this country. Because? For the simple, because you're not in a real democracy like you are in Europe. So now if someone like Trump or DeSantis was to get in power, with a national service, they would turn it into a conscription army. And who's in the army? The young people. It would be a perfect ex- way. For I think you're making my people. case, Randy. Yeah, but they're going to get the young people off the street that <sighs> would demonstrate against the government. Exactly. And what military, do they do? They start sabotaging the system. And look at what happened in Vietnam. You had, a, you know, you had average soldiers who did not believe in the war, who did not agree with the war, who got drafted and sent over there. And there was a hell of a lot of anti-war activity in Vietnam. There were a lot of soldiers who refused to go out and, and kill other people. You had, you know, there were even fragging incidents, you know, which I'm not encouraging. Oh, no, I, so yeah, no, I, I think that would be the defense that. against that. I'm far more concerned that if Trump became president, he would have an all-volunteer military where everybody in the military loves Trump. You know, that's a point, but also you have to remember now, you'll also be getting people that love Trump in the military also. Well, that'll, but, but in a draft, you would have people who don't love Trump. You'd have people who... Really well, I understand, <laughs> yes. yes. So I, I think that's you know, a defense, I'm, I'm maybe, actually. Maybe I'm looking at it 
from a too much of a historical perspective, as my example was going to be the Romanovs of Russia mm-hmm. from 1613 to 1917. It was their imperial army that kept them in power. Right, but was it a conscripted army or was it a paid army? Uh, conscription. Interesting. Well, I don't know enough about the, the history of Russia to be able to respond to that, Randy. Randy, thank you. Thank you for the call. Tony in Fort Worth, Texas. Hey, Tony, what's up? I am in favor of national service as well. And like I was telling your screener, I would actually go a little bit farther with it because I am 52 years old. I would have no problem doing national service. I'm one of your truck driver listeners, and this job, just like with the military or national service, there's no such thing as one color or one gender can do the job better than anybody else. Mm. I've seen guys, I've seen people, rather, come into this job 25 years old, and they're still doing it. Heterosexual, homosexual, transgender, with whatever the term is now, women, it's the mindset of the person, not the color of the skin or the gender that determines who can do national service yeah. or who can't. Yeah, I'm with you. I, the reason why, uh, typically, I think that uh, there's a couple of reasons, but the, the, the main reason, I think, typically why, you know, uh, military conscription is at 18, more or less, depends on the country is because that's kind of optimal fighting age, you know, and and, and also optimal indoctrination age. But it's also, from a psychological point of view, it's it, people need rites of passage. When they, when they make that transition from being essentially a child to being essentially an adult, every society, every culture has rituals around that. In Catholicism, it's called confirmation. In Judaism, it's called bar mitzvah and bat mitzvah. In, in uh, you know, every, every society figures out a way. And in, in the secular one in the United States is graduating from high school. Every society figures out a way to honor and actually have kind of a, a doorway through which young people pass when they become adults. And, 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 but at the and, same time, if I may jump in right there, because as, as the son and grandson of a war veteran, I can safely say, being 18 myself and listening to my father and my grandfather's stories, 18, when they give you that, when they give you that gun, you get that uniform. It's not, it's also, as you said, a rite of passage, but it's also that mindset, you're invincible, you're young, you're not afraid to die, you've got this gun, you know, you're going to fight, you're going to kill the bad guys because this is what you've seen in the movies. Take your pick, John Wayne, whoever. You've got that mindset, and with all through basic training, that's what that's what's put into your mind. It's not. No, I, I get all that, older. but what I'm saying is that that it's also psychologically a healthy thing for a society exactly. to have a, a rite of passage, and the extent to which people share that binds them to each other. You know, when people go to a bar mitzvah or when they go to confirmation or even when they go to a high school graduation for their friends, their neighbors, their colleagues, kids, there's a sense of solidarity that comes out of that. And there's a sense of making that transition on the on the part of the child. And this is all like psychologically really healthy stuff. Exactly. I agree. 
So therefore, I think that that one year of, of national service, which, you know, I'm guessing only a small minority of people would choose to do it through the military. And again, there you may have some self-selection process, which you could argue would not be meeting my goal of having a military that represents America. But, you know, this is the closest I think we can get it would be the way to do it. Tony, thank you for the call. Thanks for the confirmation, no pun intended, of what I'm suggesting. Represent.us, as in represent us. They put together a bunch of really cool videos over at represent.us. Uh, the, the headline on their website is, We're Saving American Democracy, Join Us. And uh, in fact, they, their, their, their tagline says, Represent Us brings together conservatives, progressives, and everyone in between to pass powerful laws that end corruption and fix our broken political system. And they've got a new ad out that is just spectacular. It's a little over two minutes. And as soon as the ad is done, I'll get back to your phone call. So if you're on hold, just hang on. Um, but I want to play this ad for you because it is just so precious. It is just so brilliant. So here it comes right now. Is your democracy flaccid? Trouble maintaining a strong coalition? Tired of the parade of disappointing performances? Then you might be one of the 330 million Americans suffering from electile dysfunction. I get all excited about a new bill. The debate gets all hot and heated. We'll move things to the floor. And right when we're about to achieve a joint resolution, bam. Total government shutdown. Premature capitulation. I don't know, every time I get an election, I think maybe this time will be different. Filibusting just doesn't make me feel good anymore. It's embarrassing, okay? Fortunately, there's the Freedom to Vote Act. The Freedom to Vote Act? What's the Freedom to Vote Act? The Freedom to Vote Act, what does that mean? The Freedom to Vote Act ends your tired, sagging, floppy relationship with politics by making Election Day a holiday across the country, banning gerrymandering, expanding voter access, increasing integrity, blocking foreign interference, empowering everyday citizens, and healing our democracy. Now my election is rock solid, and it works everywhere. Oh, it works everywhere. And it's safe. It used to take me forever to find the location. To, to vote. vote. <laughs> but with the FTVA, we have all day to get to the polls. And it only takes two minutes. Which I prefer, honestly. She really does. The Freedom to Vote Act is only for democracies healthy enough for electoral activity. Talk to your representative if you are experiencing greased palms, lined pockets, dictators, neo-fascists, or other pre-existing conditions, as you may not be healthy enough for the FTVA. Passing FTVA may cause an increase in being heard, power, a full expression of your inalienable rights, representation, and a rare federal condition called accountability. If you experience voting lines that last over four hours, call your senator, as they have not passed the FTVA. Talk to your senator about the Freedom to Vote Act and demand safer and more satisfying elections today. There you go. That's brilliant. That is absolutely brilliant. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Kathy in Madison, Wisconsin. Hey, Kathy, what's on your mind today? Hi, Tom. I'm uh, following up on the OSHA and the Biden so-called vaccine mandate. Mm -hmm. I want to point out it's important that people know that 
the vaccine is really not the mandate. The mandate is the testing. Correct. The vaccine is optional. That's correct. But everybody's calling it a vaccine mandate, and I think what it's doing is kind of giving people the wrong impression of, of what it really is. There's another mandate for masks and everything, but the real, the, the real thing is that they've got to test at least once a week if they're not going to take the vaccine, and they don't have to take the vaccine. So there's that. And what bothered me the other day when you raised the issue of what the Republicans did in the Senate the other night by this idiotic and useless resolution against, um, you know, the new OSHA rules, right. is that they keep using this really extreme language about uh, OSHA and the COVID protections and all that. It's overreach. It's communism. It's taking away our freedom. When, in fact, OSHA has been mandated for 50 years to do exactly what they're doing. Right, to There's workers. nothing extreme about this at And protect all. them from disease, fact, too. Yes. Some of the OSHA rules go back into the 1800s, honestly. That's how long labor laws have been established to protect worker health and safety. And when OSHA was established uh, and signed into law 50 years ago, the basic language it was called the, um, the general duty clause. And this is where all the rules come out of. And the general duty clause required employees to provide workplaces safe uh, from what they call known hazards. We know COVID is a hazard. People are dying. So what the Republicans are actually doing in coming out against these these regulations to protect worker health and safety are they're basically telling people, we don't give a damn about your lives. And especially in those industries that got wiped out last year with COVID deaths. Like, remember the whole meatpacking thing? Yep. And there was retail and nursing homes. And now in 2020, we get all the news reports about people leaving jobs like that, particularly because of the low wage, the lousy treatment, and because of their COVID risks. So, you know, their message is so muddled, it's insane, but people really have to know their rights. Yeah, I'm with you, Kathy. And, and I think the most important point you made, and if there's any elected Democrats listening, is messaging. You know, this when, when the Biden administration rolled this out, they should have called it a testing mandate and yeah. that you can get around by getting vaccinated. Although I don't think that they ever use the phrase vaccine mandate, but of course the Republicans are gonna jump over all over that and see so you have to get ahead of, of the, the message, you know, in the messaging war. Kathy, thank you, that is brilliant. Jeremiah in Coalport, Pennsylvania. Hey, Jeremiah, what's on your mind today? Hey, Tom, you've said quite a few times on your program that of the men who get COVID, 25% of them end up with erectile dysfunction. So who get, I have uh, a, who gets severe symptomatic COVID, or not necessarily severe, who gets symptomatic COVID. Uh, yeah, if I'm remembering correctly. Okay, well, my um, talking point for that would be don't play Russian roulette with your manhood. <laughs> it's a good one. That's a good one. So my question to you is if um, we have been saying this all along, you know, would that have made a difference? Could it make a difference going forward? And, you know, every time we talk about COVID, we talk about the mortality rate. We don't talk about the morbidity rate. Right. People look at 2% mortality and say, oh, well, you know, it's not going to happen to me. But, I mean, if we right. emphasize the morbidity rate, maybe we, we would get somewhere. I completely agree with you, Jeremiah. And I would like to see Anthony Fauci, when he comes on all these shows that he's doing, start talking about erectile dysfunction and dementia 
and long-term chronic fatigue and how often this happens to people. I would like to see some good studies on this getting, I know that they're being done, they're getting virtually no publicity. There was a study that came out last week showing that, you know, psychosis and emotional crises, depression, long-term depression is one of the side effects of symptomatic COVID. And of course, if you're not vaccinated, you're far more likely to get symptomatic COVID. If you are vaccinated, you're more likely to get unsymptomatic COVID. You don't have symptoms. And in other words, your blood isn't clotting up. And so it's not causing little tiny strokes in your brain or in your penis or wherever it may be in your body. And you're not you know, ending up with lung and heart damage and kidney damage and all those other places. So I, I completely agree with you. And I think that Fauci and the FDA and the CDC and the whole bunch of them they could have been messaging this in a way that would have shocked Americans and totally kicked their asses. And instead, they've been trying to play, you know, nice, thoughtful academic doctor. I'm wondering if um, we uh, like emphasize, you, you know, the erectile dysfunction, you know, like a lot of the guys are not getting the vaccine are doing it because it's a manly man it thing. Tough. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. They, they, they think it's an indication that they're tough. And, and I'd, yeah, I'd but, love to see well, an ad well, campaign. Like if, I love I love right. your idea. Don't don't uh, don't play Russian roulette with your manhood. You know, it's a, it's a, do you want to be on Viagra for the rest of your life? Really? You know, or in many cases, even that won't work. Brilliant, Jeremiah. Hopefully, hopefully some public health officials are listening and they will do something about it. Denise in Rocky Gap, Virginia. Hey, Denise, what's on your mind today? Hey, Tom, how are you? You were talking about the bullies. You're absolutely right. You do have to confront them. I mean, the GOP has now become the bully party. That's all they do. They have knocked out their own members. A lot of members that I'm in a red part, they become independents and now they're rhinos. They're, they threaten them with their job. And Oh, look at how they're going after Liz Cheney and, and Adam Kinzinger. Yes. Is going to run for re-election. And they operate by making their victims feel alone and powerless. But here's the thing. They're not alone, and they're definitely not powerless. These people that are in the crosshairs, what we've got to do is stand up and support them, because they're going to be standing up. If they will stand up, like those professors in Florida, I can't believe that. That's just insane. Yeah. Would stand up against it, and then we support that, come out and support them, they would back down. I think but you're right. I think but, you're right. And it's starting to happen. We're, we're starting we're working to see in silos. Resistance. And I'm sitting there going, wait a minute, let's back this guy. He's, I'm backing Adam Kinzer. I'm backing Liz Cheney. And I have nothing in con- common with Liz Cheney, oh, yeah. except for that. Yep. <laughs> no, it's, it's coming down to the point, Denise, where uh, the choice is between democracy or autocracy. You know, yeah. do, do, you want an, do you want America to become a democracy, a more perfect democracy? Or do you want America to regress back to something like the Confederate oligarchy where, you know, you've got a couple thousand families who basically control, they basically controlled the entire South from the 1830s until the Civil War and, you know, suppress all resistance and, you know, use the power of the state to go against their political enemies and all this kind of thing. And we know that that's what they'll do because that's what they are doing when they have the ability to do it. It's what they're advocating. It's, it's what their, their followers are pushing. So. Yes, but those that stand up are are getting beat pretty bad. And what we've got to do is stand up with them. Yeah. The reason why they're afraid to stand up, they're going to be primary. They're going to be uh, without a job. They're going to be whatever. Well, we need to stand up and say, if you'll stand up, we'll stand with you. Yeah. And that's it, where it needs to go. It is, it is the rise of a new fascist movement, a neo-fascist movement within the Republican Party that most yep. troubles and concerns me. And if these guys succeed, if, if there's this scenario that people who do political game 
you know, war games essentially are looking at. And the question is, if a lot of Trumpies win primaries in Republican districts all across the country, obviously in safe districts it almost doesn't matter, but you know, there's a lot that are close enough, right? If a lot of Trumpies win, is that going to cause a backlash? Is that going to bring out people who would vote against the, the Trumpies? Or is that going to be the death knell of democracy in America? And I don't think anybody knows the answer to that question right now. And a lot is going to depend on people of goodwill like yourself, Denise, who are willing to stand up. And, and even if it takes, even if it takes it, you know, uh, support a Republican who at least supports democracy. Denise, I got to run, but thank you for the call. Melissa in St. Charles, Illinois. Hey, Melissa, what's on your mind? Hi, Tom. Much respect to you. I have an answer to your question. You said, will the bully, the bully win? And I will say yes if we do not hold them accountable. Accountable. Amen. It's like the abusive spouse. My ex-boyfriend went uh, QAnon. I called you before about him. Um, when it was all going down, I was afraid to come home. I live here. It's my house. I had to call the police. They sent wow. five police officers out. They did nothing. They stood with him laughing at me. He was telling them, oh, she's crazy. She's, cr she's so crazy. I'm standing on the street. He's on my porch with the five officers just laughing at me. So the next morning, I went to the courthouse, and I filed a restraining order, and they removed him immediately because he had lit some of my stuff on fire. So my point is... If we, like the abused spouse in the scenario, the Democrats, do nothing and just let them run all over us and say, oh, they did this, they did that, but never do anything. I mean, we had the Mueller report. Why are we not prosecuting the former guy? Like, I mean, I agree. You know? I'm with you. I, it's, it's like it's like uh, it's like Merrick Garland is, is is afraid of being bullied. Yeah. Yeah. I thought he was going to be strong when he came in because, I mean, he had tears in his eyes when he was talking about how people were abused in the past, like the, the Jewish people and, and whatever. And we need to do something because the people on the, the right side are saying that, you know, since nothing happened, it, you know, like look at when he was impeached. There was a big, a big uh, newspaper that said he was acquitted. And then everyone said, oh, nothing happened. No, he wasn't. He no, was he was not acquitted. Twice. He was simply not convicted. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm with you. I'm with you, Melissa. And we do need to be fighting back. Thank you very much. So very, very well said. I appreciate the call. We'll be back with more of the news and more of my thoughts and yours in this uh, kind of national town hall meeting we have here every day on the Tom Hartman program. And in the meantime, don't forget democracy is not a spectator sport. Never was intended to be. It requires you. So get out there, get active, tag, you're it. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.